Good morning. I'm David, and uh, our text this morning is Daniel chapter 8. Um, as you're turning there, quick story. I was trying to decide whether or not to read the whole chapter. It is a long chapter. And um, then I read how in the book of uh, Nehemiah, who's a contemporary of Daniel, Ezra read from the book of the Law of Moses from morning to midday. So uh, this will not take nearly that long, only about six minutes. But if you will, if you're able, please uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year, the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and, when, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land." It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not with his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these words, um, we realize that we live in a fallen world. We live with the consequences of a fallen world in, in sin, in death. We realize that our own mortality. And Father, we don't know the future, but we do know the one who holds the future. So Father, I pray that you would uh, make very real to us in Daniel chapter 8 your sovereignty, your authority over the kingdoms of men. And Father, that uh, our future is secure with you. So Father, we, we recognize that. We pray that you would stir our affection for Jesus. And that uh, through these, uh, these words in Daniel chapter 8, Father, that we would uh, desire more and more uh, to, to be with him and to live for him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to the eighth chapter in our study of the book of Daniel, God reminds us again that history is his story and is leading somewhere. The key theme of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. Kings and nations will rise and fall until their final replacement with the true king. He's working his sure purposes toward the final day when his son returns to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Chapter 8 reveals Daniel's second vision. You'll remember in chapter 7, his first vision, there's four beasts representing world empires. Daniel's first vision parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, where different parts of the statue are successive world powers. The four beasts in chapter 4 come up from the sea, one after the other. Sorry, chapter 7. The first beast represents the kingdom of Babylon. 
When the vision was given to Dan, Daniel, remember Dan, uh, Babylon was uh, a world power that seemed invincible. But Babylon of Daniel's day was thrown down and will be replaced by another world power and then another. These great empires of which history makes so much are all thrown down. One rises and then the next with constant churning. Only at the end of the age when Christ returns will human history change its trajectory. God is sovereign over the course of history. Number one, we'll see in Daniel 8 that he's sovereign over those who represent the power of the Antichrist. Number two, he's sovereign over those who represent the character of the Antichrist. So throughout history, Satan has tried to overthrow the plan of God, and many false messiahs have arisen. The final false messiah will be the worst. In 1 John, we are told that many lesser antichrists have come, but the antichrist is coming. 2 Thessalonians re refers to the final antichrist as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Daniel's visions cover the sweep of history from Daniel's time through the end of the age when Christ returns. He tells us about the man the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist, but along the way, he introduces us to other individuals in history who give us insight into the final Antichrist. Chapter 8 tells us of the forerunners of the man of lawlessness. They reveal to us something of the power and character of the son of destruction. God controls the course of history. We learn something of the power of the Antichrist first through the ram. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So here we learn that the vision took place two years after the first one in around 550 B.C. We're told it's in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. The vision occurred at about the same time that Cyrus conquered the Medes and united the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Chapter 8 takes place two years after chapter 7, but about 11 years before chapter 5, which describes the fall of Babylon. In verse 2, it says, And I saw the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, this is actually something that's very remarkable. In verse 2, it tells us that the vision takes place in Susa. Now, you have to realize, when Daniel had this vision, Susa was an insignificant city. It was a, um, a capital of a province in Babylon, on the edge of the Babylonian Empire. But the Spirit of God tells Daniel that something is about to happen here. So about 10 years after this vision, Cyrus the Great captures Susa, and he transforms it into the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. Susa is where Nehemiah was in exile when he was <clears throat> told that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and its uh, gates destroyed by fire. 
It was in Susa that Esther was queen. But all of this is still in the future in verse 2. The Medes and the Persians were both Iranian peoples. The Medes rose to power first, but were conquered by Cyrus II, known as Cyrus the Great. Then Cyrus united the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen up to this time. According to a Greek historian, he brought, and I'm quoting, into subjection every nation without exception. Cyrus conquered westward into Turkey and parts of Greece. He advanced northward into Eastern Europe, and he eventually turned his empire south to Egypt and Nubia. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So the Medes are the Medes and the Persians, or the horns are the Medes and the Persians, but the Medes, uh, even though they came to power and arose in power first, the Persians were the ones that later rose to preeminence. The empire is commonly known as the Persian or the Achaemenid Empire. The symbol on the coins, and this is kind of neat, of the Persian Empire was, you guessed it, a ram. The ram, the Persian Empire, was portrayed as the chest and arms of silver in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And in Daniel's first vision, in chapter 7, it was a bear that was raised up on one side. So in verse 4, it says, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there is no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Once again, the prophecy is given in great detail and is fulfilled with great specificity. The Medo-Persian Empire conquered west, north, and south of where it started. And Cyrus was known in history as Cyrus the Great. God is sovereign over the course of history. The first part of Daniel 8 is the vision. The second part of the chapter is the interpretation of the vision. Pastor John and Pastor Chris have shown us in Daniel how he makes extensive use of chiastic structures to draw attention to certain parts of the story. So once again, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel helps us with at least two literary devices, the change from one language to the other and the orderly interpretation of the symbols. So first, the language. The um, Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language with but one exception a portion of the book of Daniel. From chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, Daniel is written in Aramaic, the Gentile and diplomatic language of Daniel's day. In chapter 8, Daniel returns to Hebrew. He's still talking about Gentile world powers, but as it relates to the nation of Israel. They're in the midst of captivity, but he writes to give them hope. He prepares them for great suffering ahead by giving them prophecies in great detail so that when these things come upon them, they will not despair, but know that it is God who is in control. The second literary device that Daniel uses is the interpretation of the symbols in order. 
So, for example, the ram in verse 3 corresponds to the Medo-Persian Empire that we see in verse 20. The goat in verse 5 is interpreted as Greece in verse 21. The interpretation is in the same order as the vision. And as you'll see, that's especially important when uh, we come to the verses referring to the little horn and knowing which of those verses are talking about the little horn. So let's jump down to the uh, 15 through 20 to see the interpretation of uh, what we've seen so far in the, in the vision. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Of all the legions of angels, only four are mentioned by name in the Bible. One is Apollyon, the angel of the bottomless pit. Another is Lucifer, who is Satan. The third is Michael, and we meet him later on in, in Daniel. The fourth is Gabriel, who is a herald of important news. So Gabriel was the one that announced the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. He also announced the coming of the Messiah to Mary. If Gabriel gets the assignment, listen up. It's a big deal. So Gabriel mentions the phrase, the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Some commentators say the indignation refers to God's anger towards Israel for disobedience and is talking about the great tribulation that's mentioned in the New Testament. Once again, we see God is preparing his people for what is about to happen so that when it comes upon them, they will not despair, but take comfort that it is God who is in control. The second individual in history who gives us insight into the power of the final Antichrist is portrayed as the goat. Verse 5, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So you remember the ram came during Daniel's lifetime. Now we're looking 200 years beyond that, to the time of the goat. The conspicuous horn was Alexander the Great. The speed of his conquest made it seem as if the known, he conquered the whole known world without touching the ground. In chapter 2 of Daniel, the goat, uh, the Greek empire is portrayed as the middle and thighs of bronze in the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was a leopard with four wings in Daniel's first vision in chapter 7. Verse 21, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So Alexander the, the Great succeeded his father Philip to the throne at the age of 20. 
But Alexander was the first conquering king. Philip didn't conquer or start any kind of world conquest. By the time Alexander began his campaign against the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians had been making war on the Greeks for 165 years. They were bitter enemies. Verses 6 and 7. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Alexander spent most of his ruling years on an unprecedented military campaign through Western Asia and Northeastern Africa. By the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, stretching from Greece to northwestern India. Alexander was undefeated in battle and is widely considered one of history's most successful military commanders. He's a measure against which military leaders throughout history have compared themselves. Military academies throughout the world today still teach his tactics. He's often ranked among the most influential people in history. Alexander believed that he really wasn't the son of Philip, but the son of Zeus, and took that title. He was ruthless and responsible for the death of thousands. At the height of his power, he died suddenly in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon at age 32. Some say that he died of a fever. Some say that he was poisoned. Now keep in mind that Daniel was prophesying about someone who wasn't even born yet. Through the Spirit of God, he's predicting the future. We look at Daniel's vision and we see on this side of history how it was fulfilled, but Daniel must have looked at that and said, what? These little Greek city-states are going to defeat the mighty Persian Empire. Yet, in time, every last detail was fulfilled. Because God, once again, is preparing his people for what is about to happen so that when these things come upon them, they will not despair, but take comfort that it is God who is in control. Verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander's death was so sudden that it was not immediately believed uh, when reports of his death reached Greece. His empire disintegrated into a time of war and chaos. Eventually, Alexander's vast empire was carved up uh, into four different kingdoms and ruled by four of his generals. None of these kingdoms ever recovered the power that had been Alexander's. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Alexander's death marks the beginning of the Hellenistic period from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indus River Valley. It lasted until the emergence of Rome 
300 years later. During this time, Greek culture spread. Koine Greek, or common Greek, became the language of commerce even after the, the Romans uh, rose to power. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son. In God's sovereignty, Pax Romana, Roman peace, created a worldwide network uh, throughout the ancient world, of the known world. Pirates were removed from 6,000 miles of coastlands around the Mediterranean Sea. The world opened to trade and commerce flourished. Journeys like the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul were now possible. Babylonian captivity added synagogue worship. The Medo-Persian Empire added a new respect for law. Remember Daniel uh, 8, 6 Chapter 6, verse 8, refers to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. The Greek civilization provided a commonly understood language, and it uh, shared culture, which is also necessary for shared understanding. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. This language was so uniformly understood that um, people from different uh, people groups could understand the gospel and could uh, accurately understand what, what uh, was being said. So, once again, we see God's sovereign uh, hand over the course of history. We saw something of the power of the final Antichrist in the ram and the goat. Cyrus and Alexander uh, demonstrate military power and speed of conquest, and the size of empires. Now we'll look at someone who will reveal something of the character of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. We'll look at the little horn. So who is the little horn? <laughs> Bible commentators seem to fall into three major camps. Some commentators say the little horn is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who lived from 216 to 164 B.C. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a Hellenistic king of the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was one of the four empires that followed Alexander the Great. Notable events during his reign uh, was his near conquest of Egypt, his persecution of the Jews of Judea and Samaria, and the rebellion of the Jewish Maccabees. For about Seven years, Antiochus persecuted the Jews. According to the Apocrypha, which is not scripture, 2 Maccabees 5.14 says he slaughtered 80,000 people in Jerusalem within a three-day period. He terrorized the city and the citizens of Jerusalem. As we'll see as we go through the passage, however, there are problems with saying that Antiochus is the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. There are many things that the little horn does that are not fulfilled by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So other commentators say that the little horn is the Antichrist. And parts of the prophecy of the little horn clearly seem to be pointing to the Antichrist described in the New Testament. We've already been introduced to a little horn in chapter 7, 
which many Bible commentators say is the Antichrist. But again, there's a problem. The little horn in chapter 8 seems to come from the third beast. The little horn in chapter 7 comes from the fourth beast. So, there's a third group of Bible commentators who say it's both. There was partial fulfillment in Antiochus IV Epiphanes, but the final fulfillment is with the Antichrist. This view actually makes the most sense to me. You remember last week, Pastor Chris described the phenomenon in prophecy called telescoping. So, telescoping prophecy is... Um, like looking at a mountain range through a telescope. And the mountain peaks appear to, like they're right next to each other. Um, but as, if, you're, if you fly over the mountain peaks, you'll see that they're not close to each other at all. Um, there may be hundreds or even thousands of years between these different events. As we go through the passage, I'll try to point out uh, parts that apply to Antiochus, parts that apply to the Antichrist, or both. So, verse 9, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the, the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. As with the little horn, Antiochus starts out small. He was a usurper. He came to the throne um, through power, or came to power through murder, through bribery, through flattery. His nephew was really the, the true heir. Notice in verse 9 also, it says, out of one of them came the little horn. Okay, so this is where it really gets interesting. What is the grammatical antecedent of them? Some commentators say the grammatical antecedent of them is from one of the four winds. This would... Um, mean um, that uh, it's different than the little horn in chapter 7. They would argue that the literary structure of the vision supports the interpretation. So with the ram, remember, we're given a pattern of geographic origin, conquests, and de demise. And then with the goat, geographic origin, conquests, and demise. So they say that uh, we would expect the same thing from the, uh, the little horn. But uh, this means that the little horn does not necessarily need to be Greek. Um, the little horn doesn't arise from the third beast, in their view. Other commentators say the most natural interpretation of them in verse 9 is one of the four conspicuous horns in verse 8. So that would mean that the little horn comes from one of the four Greek successors of Alexander the Great. It means that the little horn in chapter 8 is different from the little horn in chapter 7. As we said, the little horn in chapter 7 comes from the fourth beast then uh, if you believe that, uh, that interpretation, then you will see uh, the little horn in chapter 8 as a blending of Antiochus and the Antichrist, or Antiochus prefigures the Antichrist, or there was partial fulfillment in Antiochus, but the final fulfillment is in the Antichrist. 
Verse 9 also says, The little horn grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which is Israel. So Antiochus launched an Egyptian campaign that initially prevailed in Lower Egypt, but he evacuated the country when the Romans uh, thwarted his attack on Alexandria. He also campaigned in the east, but these were only partially successful. He died during that campaign, and his incomplete triumphs hardly seem exceedingly great. The beautiful land, Israel, already belonged to Antiochus IV when he assumed the throne. His persecution of the Jews caused the Maccabean Revolt. The Jews recaptured Jerusalem from Antiochus IV. The subsequent cleansing of the temple and rededication of the altar is celebrated today as the Hanukkah festival. Antiochus did not conquer the beautiful land. He lost control of it. It seems clear that Antiochus IV alone does not fulfill the prophecy of the little horn. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So who is the host of heaven? They're stars, which Daniel refers to in chapter 12 as wise ones. The stars are the people of God. Antiochus made war on the Jews in Jerusalem. The Antichrist will make war on the people of God from every tribe and nation and language and people. He will throw down the saints and trample on them. He will do all he can to destroy the godly. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Antiochus IV claimed to be, quote, God manifest, and he interrupted the Jewish system of worship and burnt offerings and desecrated the sanctuary. In the final days, though, the Antichrist will make himself equal with God. The host is God's people. The prince of the host is Christ himself. The little horn attacks their system of worship and their place of worship. Verses 12 to 14. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And a holy, another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. For how long? Isn't that what we want to know when we're going through difficult times? How long will this last? It's not forever. God has allowed it for a specific number of days. Antiochus interrupted the Jewish sacrifices, which were restored at his death in 164 BC. The sacrifices, however, were not interrupted for... Um, 2,300 days, or 6.3 years, they were interrupted for 1,080 days, which is a little less than three years. Some Bible commentators who really want the little horn to be Antiochus say, well, 
Uh, it's referring to the assassination of the high priest Ananias III in 170 BC. Other Bible commentators admit they don't know of anything notable happening 2,300 days before the death of Antiochus. Verse 13 uses the phrase, transgression that makes desolate. Daniel uses a similar phrase later on in chapters 9, 11, and 12, referring to the abomination which makes desolate. In Matthew 24, 15, and 16, Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation as something that's future. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We must allow scripture to interpret scripture, and particularly when Christ is giving us specific guidance and urges that understanding be sought in this matter. If the transgression which makes desolate in chapter 8 is the same as the abomination which makes desolate in chapters 9, 11, and 12, then it's clearly referring to a time that is still future. Now, I'm going to put in a plug here. Um, make sure you come back for the rest of the book of Daniel because we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris uh, Pastor John first, Pastor Chris, and then Pastor Joe, um, who will be teaching from chapters 9, 11, and 12, respectively. So you don't want to miss that. So we've seen Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, that he's not the Antichrist, clearly, but is a forerunner of the Antichrist. Cyrus and Alexander show the power of the Antichrist, while Antiochus foreshadows the character of the final Antichrist. Cyrus and Alexander demonstrate military power and speed of conquest and vastness of empires. Antiochus declares himself God and makes war on God's people. Look at uh, Gabriel's interpretation now in verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. Notice that it says, at the latter end of their kingdom. Antiochus IV didn't live during the latter days of the Seleucid kingdom, but near the middle. Antiochus served as the eighth of more than 20 rulers. The Greek empire endured for more than a century after his death. In contrast, John MacArthur says this about the Antichrist. The world trusts him with its problems because he has tremendous ability to solve them, and he succeeds in temporarily putting the world out of its misery. He will be a financial genius, a military genius. He will be an oratorical wonder. He will be an egomaniac that makes Hitler and Napoleon and all the Caesars fade into soft-spoken modesty. He steadily will gather power and influence through his public relations man, whom Revelation calls the false prophet. And he finally proclaims himself not king, not president, and not dictator, and not world ruler, but God Almighty, and the world buys it. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
Like Antiochus, the Antichrist will get his power from Satan and will make war on the saints. Unlike Antiochus, Satan will have the ability to act in a more unrestricted ways, such that supernatural miracles appear to be performed. Verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus died of disease. Some commentators argue that the little horn's demise seems supernatural, whereas Antiochus's death appears merely providential. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So what does he mean, seal up the vision? Don't tell anyone? No, I mean, he, he wrote it down. So it seems to mean to preserve it uh, because it's going to be many days uh, before it comes to pass. Daniel writes it down because God is preparing his people for what is about to happen so that when these things come upon them, they will not despair but take comfort that it is God who is in control. In chapter 8, we see that God is sovereign over the course of history. So how does Daniel conclude this chapter? Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. But Daniel has a very human reaction he sees the people of God thrown to the ground and trampled underfoot. He sees the persecution and destruction of the saints, and he was overcome. It literally made him sick. It was appalling, and he did not understand it. There's an interesting pair of books called The Insanity of God and The Insanity of Obedience. The author's pseudonym is Nick Ripken. He wrote the books under a pseudonym to protect the identity of hundreds of believers that he interviewed who had endured or were enduring terrible persecution. He asked these saints, how do you prepare believers for and sustain them in times of persecution? Three answers showed up repeatedly. The first was prayer. It's no coincidence that in the very next chapter of Daniel, we'll find Daniel in prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to God. Second was the memorized word of God. Many were in prison with no access to a Bible. So having significant portions of scripture memorized was what sustained them. It's what stood between them and despair. Third were scripture songs they had learned. Again, just another way of memorizing the word of God. In the foreword to the insanity of God, David Platt reminds us that the task of the Great Commission, proclaiming Christ to all people, will include suffering. But eternity will prove that such suffering was worth the price. The man of sin and Satan will finally be defeated. How will this defeat come about? Revelation 12:11 says, "Through Christians who have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death." So in conclusion, I see three applications for us from Daniel's vision. First, 
Daniel's vision shows us that things are not going to get better and better, but worse and worse. Be in prayer. Study God's word and memorize it. Don't be surprised by persecution. God is preparing us for what is about to happen so that when these things come upon us, we will not despair, but take comfort that it is God who is in control. Second, we the people of God do not build our hopes on the kingdoms of men. The government, any human government, will not bring about lasting change. All of the kingdoms of men will be overthrown. Only the kingdom of Christ will endure. It is to him and his kingdom that we owe our allegiance. It is in Christ our king that we place our hope. Third, know that ultimately God will prevail. We know how the story ends. Revelation eleven fifteen tells us, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Since we know the outcome, let us be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. Let that give us courage. So as we've seen through Daniel's vision, God reminds us again that history is his story and is leading somewhere. God is sovereign over the affairs of men. Nations will rise and fall until it's their final replacement with the true king. He is working his sure purposes toward the final day when his son returns to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you that uh, you are in control of the affairs of men. Father, we look forward to the day when you return. We look forward to the day when our faith will be sight. Father, thank you that you have given us such precious promises. Uh, Let us hold fast to the end. Father, I pray that uh, you would be with us as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.